A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and this week on the show, we are doing something a little different to mark the one-year anniversary of the week our entire world came crashing down. This Thursday is March 11th, or as I will forever think of it, Tom Hanks Day. That was the day in 2020 that we found out our national treasure Tom Hanks had tested positive for the newly terrifying coronavirus. Also, the NBA suspended its season, and Donald Trump finally acknowledged in a primetime address that something bad might be happening. In the years since, I have talked to dozens of comedians on this new thing called Zoom, and for the most part, those conversations have been pretty great, despite the immense distance between me and my guests. To mark this bizarre anniversary, we are looking back at clips from eight of those talks in which comedians explained what it has been like to try to make comedy in the middle of a pandemic. And I wanted to start with the first full interview I did on video chat with one of my favorite stand-up comedians, Cameron Esposito. It was early April at this point, and she was just learning how to tell jokes on Zoom. It didn't go exactly as planned. I'll let Cameron pick it up from here. You know the part of a movie where they do the evolutionary like montage sped up from a cell yeah. from like mm-hmm. a single cellular organism <laughs> to like the fish that then is climbing out yep. of the ocean mm-hmm. that then becomes the stand-up comic it always is a stand-up comic at the end obviously since <laughs> yeah, that's like of sort of our final form mm-hmm. um i i feel like that is what the last couple of weeks have felt like yeah um i've had some legitimate work stuff to do um yeah. but it has also all been in a new way. Like mm-hmm. not one of the things I'm currently doing for work is a skill set I had prior to <laughs> three weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, like your main skill set of getting on stage and telling jokes, that's out. That is broken. That's yeah. currently broken. Yesterday, I was trying to figure out how to set up like a multi-cam shoot to do some stand-up in my house because I've been like practicing, yeah. seeing how that... But I don't have... I mean, it's I don't have multiple tripods. I was rubber banding a phone <laughs> to a mop and then oh, yeah. like... Another phone is stacked on top of whatever, like an upside down garbage can. They I mean, just have to hope fall over mid-set, you know. <laughs> exactly. Some of it did fall over. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's that. There's like, I was hosting these... So I had, I had this book that came out yeah, and it was, I was supposed to go on this massive tour and we were sort of talking about this for the piece. I can't remember if I said this, but like I canceled the tour, like right before everything in the whole planet was canceled, which Mm -hmm. was also a funny experience because I was like racking my brain, trying to be responsible, like going back. You were a little ahead of the curve. Well, I just like, I can't put people through this, but like, it just felt like very, it felt like I was making a really strong personal choice. And Mm -hmm. then literally like three days later, it's like, actually like everything's out of your hands yeah don't don't uh take yourself so seriously um but i also set up this zoom tour almost immediately and it it was zoom bombed like before that was before we knew about zoom bombing before we like knew about that anyone coined the term zoom bombing exactly like i mean yeah I was on with 
a bunch of writers I really respect, mm-hmm. 500 queer folks who were like mm-hmm. signed in yeah. from their couches and beds. And I didn't know about the default setting on Zoom being that folks can share their screen. Yeah. And so suddenly the most hardcore pornography oh, I have ever seen in my <laughs> entire life, like a like prolapsed anuses were involved, oh, like very wow. prolapsed. And Yikes. then also it was like scatological. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could not figure out what was happening, and I broadcast <laughs> that into hundreds of people's homes. <laughs> oh, what was the uh, what was the reaction in the in the Zoom when when it everybody happened? was so kind? Yeah, I think people just didn't know what was going on because right. it was not like it was kind of sudden. And and even yeah. I kind of thought, wait, am I? Did I do this somehow? Like how? <laughs> like what setting on my? Yeah account did I accidentally press where then it's like hardcore <laughs> like I just <laughs> well, I'm, yeah I'm really hoping that doesn't happen during this uh, interview but I think I think we're safe I, I think know. we're safe too we managed to emerge unscathed so that was a relief next up is Jimmy O Yang who you might know as Jin Yang from HBO Silicon Valley we talked last May about the awful rise in anti-Asian racism that had become a byproduct of the pandemic, something that has sadly been back in the news in recent weeks. Jimmy explained how he has tried to use humor throughout his life to counter hate. I mean, 13 is a weird age for anyone. Uh, yeah. Now I have to go to a new country, a new continent, speak a new language. Mm-hmm. I, I talked about this in the special. I yeah. learned how to speak English, like how American kids learn how to speak Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> but I, if I would have dropped you off when you were 13 mm-hmm. in, in Tijuana, you would have just died probably. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's not easy. Like, I couldn't understand the simplest like slang terms. I feel like mm-hmm. people were talking too fast. So I watched a lot of TV, namely BET, yeah. to kind of learn. Mm-hmm a lot of my English. So there was a learning curve. I was in all the ESL classes, paired up with all the foreign kids. So it wasn't like my first year of school and middle school. It wasn't even about like making friends or being popular, mm-hmm. like what other 13-year-old kids would be worried yeah. about. I was just trying to survive, Yeah, you know, just trying to find that one friend and not get beat up, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, But luckily, I think that's where I developed some of the humor, even though my mm-hmm. English wasn't that good. Like I know how to have a comeback or like whatever mm-hmm. and kind of talk smart, stand up for myself. So that kind of carried me a long way. And being kind of like the funny, weird foreign guy um, became kind of my identity. Mm-hmm. Instead of just being weird, I was I was trying to be funny, you know, at least. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So by the time I get to high school and like, um, you know, the next year, I already had one year of training. Mm-hmm. So like, and, and, and that was tremendously helpful. Um, I know that there's been, you know, unfortunately, during this uh, time that we're in now with coronavirus, a lot of anti-Asian racism going on, sort of resurgence of it. So I was curious, is that something that you've actually experienced at all um, in these last uh, couple months? Well, sure. I don't go outside, (laughs) so I don't know. But it is something I see on the news, and it's extremely disheartening, especially because recently we've made so much representation, uh, representation progress in Crazy Rich Asians, and now everybody's career is doing pretty well, and hopefully yeah. we open some doors for the younger generation. And it's extremely disheartening to see those kind of racism in the news. But there, I feel like there's just always going to be ignorant people out there, mm-hmm. and then I try to do my best job, like, you know what I'm saying, like with the stand-up special, and so now you feel like you know uh, intimately this Asian brother and his family, mm-hmm. and maybe that will help uh, through humor, just like what Richard Pryor did back in the day, 
you mm-hmm. know, um, just to kind of be the friendly face. I think that's what I can do best as an entertainer to entertain, make you forget about it for, you know, a bit. And then uh, hopefully everybody kind of, I, I don't have any suggestions of what they should do. Yeah. You know, uh, I never want to suggest violence or, or uprising or anything like that Mm. but um it sucks uh i definitely empathize um but you know for me i'm lucky enough to be in the position where i can use humor i can use different mediums like writing stories that matter to me authentic asian american stories and that to hopefully be a stand-up citizen to others that was stand-up citizen jimmy o yang now on to all-around stand-up guy nick offerman who co-starred in what is still, in my opinion, the best piece of quarantine content created over the past year, the Parks and Rec reunion special. The man behind Ron Swanson told me how they managed to pull it off. To my knowledge, it was it would be impossible to do all the scenes together. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could arguably have the actor, you know, I could have Amy on a FaceTime call yeah. or something, but that would require yet another channel of communication just to read the lines. Yeah, so you're basically just doing your lines in isolation and they're stitching it all together afterwards. Yes, yeah, which yeah. which when you go back and look at it is pretty goddamn amazing. Yeah, like it, you wouldn't it, know from watching it at all. No. Um, I it's one of the, it's one of the many examples of like I'm glad I always liken myself if this is an army I'm I'm a guy with a shovel and yeah. I love all the, all these specialists and and general Mike Schur and his incredible lieutenants at some point tell me what to shovel and where mm. and the hilarious thing is then the audience says god that guy with the shovel was amazing <laughs> I say well I, all I did was dig like yeah. somebody had to figure everything else out Hello, Leslie. I see you are contacting me again. This is the system, Ron. 7 p.m. phone tree. I call someone and then they call someone else and we keep doing it until everyone has been reached. This is the system. You got a better system? Yes, we talk far less than that. Or we just send each other a photo of ourselves holding up today's newspaper to prove we're okay. It's impossible to get everyone on the phone at the same time, you know? And talking is important, Ron. We have to look out for our mental and emotional health. This is the only mental health I need. What are you doing? Are you in your cabin? I am. I come up here to hunt meat so I don't have to go to the grocery store. I've built up about a 12-year supply of venison jerky. I can ship you some. You probably have to get your incisor teeth sharpened. Ew, no. When you travel, are you practicing social distancing? I've been practicing social distancing since I was four years old. I imagine the hardest sequence to pull off then was the song at the end, the uh, the little Sebastian song. Um, yeah. Was that, so you were all, again, doing that, all of your own parts separately? Yeah, totally. Um, and, and listening to, you know, we're all singing along to mm-hmm. a track. Yeah. Um, and, and so that allows it to match up. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, it's... Once again, I, I had uh, the opportunity to just be so grateful to be part of the, this team of collaborators. Yeah, I, I thought I saw I maybe saw you uh, tearing up a little bit during the during the song. Is that was that emotional well, for you to to do that? Yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, I tour as a humorist uh, among other jobs that I do, and almost right away, I I, I never thought I would uh, turn out to be a comedian, as it were. I'm a theater theater actor yeah. by training, but uh, early on in Parks and Rec, probably a few years in, so probably I think 2011 or so, 
maybe 12, colleges began to invite me to perform my stand-up. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, oh, I don't do that. I'm a, I'm a theater actor. Yeah. But event, eventually, uh, it, it pays really well. And I, and I thought, how many kids? 2,000 kids? Yeah, I would really love to talk to 2,000 mm-hmm. college students. Please tell Ohio State that, yes, I will come perform my stand-up. So I started writing specials. Um, actually, this timing is good. Literally tomorrow, I think, um, or, or uh, I'm on the cusp of uh, releasing a website, nickofferman.co. Oh, cool. uh, and I'm, for the first time, I'm releasing my specials. Uh, oh, nice. Availability, yeah. And, I, and because of the timing, I'm donating all the proceeds to uh, food charities. That's um, great. Well, you know, I my rent is paid, so uh, <laughs> I'd be kind of a, a douche if I did, didn't do that. But so so I started uh, performing as a humorist, and it was like my third or fourth college was University of Wisconsin at, at Madison, one of the greatest schools in the country. I love it. Uh, when you walk mm-hmm. off stage, you get handed a very large beer and a <laughs> bratwurst. Um, and I was doing a Q&A after the show, and somehow little Sebastian came up, mm-hmm. and... Uh, and and the place went crazy. The roof blew off the, yeah. the joint. And so I sang a little bit of it, and <laughs> everybody just went wild. So I got a hold of Mike Schur, and I said, hey, uh, when I'm out here touring, I play songs on the guitar. Does anybody care if, like, for an encore or something, if I do 5,000 Candles in the Wind? And he said, mm-hmm. no, you know, go nuts. And so... I started doing that. And so now for years, that's part of my encore mm-hmm. is I do 5,000 Candles in the Wind. And the audience just goes bananas. They all wave their lighters or their, they light up their phones mm-hmm. and wave them. And, you know, it's uh, so that song has remained a, a very vital part of my life. You know, it's never gone away for me. And, and it is so meaningful. The, uh, it makes me think about Chris Pratt. And that just that makes me tear up. Makes mm-hmm. me think about the, like the way Ron feels about Lil Sebastian or felt about him. Mm-hmm. That not only does that make Ron tear up, but the fact that they wrote that for me that makes me tear up. Mm-hmm. Like the whole, it's just it's just layers on layers of gratitude and emotion. And that, that's that's why it was the finale of the episode. And that's you know yeah. from the social media that I saw, that's what got the most play. Everyone said thank you so much, um, especially thank you so much for five thousand candles in the yeah. wind. Like I thought, the that, whole show was just so affecting, and that was that was really just the capper at the end. And it really, I don't know, it just it just worked so well. It's it's one of I mean even even more so than than SNL and all these people are doing things from home. I felt like this Parks and Rec special is sort of the most successful example of what you can do from home in this way, which is, it's really challenging. And it's, you know, it seems like we're going to be doing it for longer than we expected. So it's, a, yeah, it's important sure. to figure these things out. I, I agree. And and once again, you know, Mike Schur, Morgan Sackett, Doug Smith, Dean Holland, these brains and the writers, we yeah. had like seven of our writers. They're the most clever people, you know, and part of their cleverness is they can walk through the airport. They pick a shoveler like me and I have to, <laughs> I have to take the hit. Yeah. <laughs> I, I get all the credit, but I also can't stand in line at the Shake Shack without yeah. being accosted. Well, fortunately, no one's standing in line at Shake Shack anymore, so... Yes, for better or worse. (laughs) What a mensch that guy is. For other comedians, like Tig Notaro, who I had a really fun chat with last July, the lockdown has meant a welcome excuse to step back and spend more time than she otherwise would have off the road and with her family at home. 
funny because I feel like I struggle with moments where I think, gosh, am I not a real comedian? (laughs) Because after I had children, I was okay with scaling back my time and with doing the road or getting up on stage around town. And I felt really happy and fulfilled being home. And then I felt really happy and fulfilled when I actually went on tour and performed. When I do my local Largo show in Los Angeles, I'm usually on stage for an hour and a half, really trying out new material and trying to make the best of my time. And then here I am in the middle of a pandemic and we're taking it very seriously. And we really are home. And I'm okay with it in that I'm really enjoying being with my family. And I love comedy. If somebody said tomorrow (laughs) it is back, I would be thrilled to be on stage. But I'm also, I've been doing podcasts and I have my own podcast coming out and it it fulfills the stand-up side of me to some degree. Was there a time in your life where you really felt like you had to be getting on stage every night or or you weren't fulfilled? Yeah, I would say up until probably up until I met Stephanie and I really wanted to spend the majority of my time with her and I also wanted to maintain my interest and career, but I do feel like there is a balance that works for me and it's not at all. I know there are comedians that are married with kids that are out at venues every night, multiple venues. And I, all I can say is we're (laughs) different people and I don't know. Uh, We also, Stephanie and I share the responsibilities with the kids just down the middle. We're both getting up at five in the morning with them and we're both making their meals and we're both doing everything. So it's, and maybe the other comedians are too with their spouses. I don't know, but we are fully in it together. And I wake up at five and, you know, even my Largo show that used to be at 830 I asked the owner Flanagan if I could move it to seven o'clock. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I used to get up numerous times a night and I don't miss it. Yeah. Well, I, but I miss stand up, but I'm also okay with time home. And it's giving me a chance to to do other things. Yeah, I did see that you you do have, still have some tour dates on the on the schedule for the fall. Assuming that that happens, are you working on new material? Do you have quarantine material ready to go, or how do you how do you feel about getting back up? I feel great about getting back up. I'd be curious to see if those dates really stick. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah, I have material from right now. I think it's kind of impossible to not. It's a completely new experience. Yeah, it's it's also interesting. I have a special that it hasn't been announced yet that I sold to a network before the pandemic. Actually, the day the pandemic, <laughs> the day that lockdown happened. <laughs> that must have been a day of mixed emotions. <laughs> yeah. And then I also have a new hour of material that wasn't sold for the pandemic that I often think about how do you return to that if if I even do return to it coming up we hear stories from Jordan Klepper about risking his life for comedy Sarah Cooper about becoming famous without leaving her apartment and more
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode, please hit subscribe. You can hear all of the full episodes that we clipped for this week's show and so many others from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And hey, while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts to let us know how much you love The Last Laugh and who you want to hear next. Now, back to the show. And we're back. Last summer, I talked to Beth Stelling, who got her first hour-long special in the can just under the wire before the shutdown happened back in March. I asked her when exactly she taped that special, called Girl Daddy for HBO Max, and here's what she told me. March 7th. Oh 2020. My God. You might be the last one, the last person who filmed a special. It's very possible because down. that was a Saturday night. People film on different nights. You know, I'm sure somebody's filmed on a Monday or if they couldn't get a venue a Tuesday or whatever it is. But um, I don't know. It's weird in my head. I have certain nights that are comedy nights and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. But like you're saying, I doubt anybody filmed, but maybe somebody had a Thursday taping or something. Yeah, you never know. But that is pretty crazy because that's just like a few days before everything went insane. Yeah, because the following weekend I was supposed to do some shows in St. Louis and it was down to the wire whether I was going to show up that night. At first it was like, yeah, I'll be there, of course. And then it was like news coming in from every, I'm texting with other comics around the country. I was texting with uh, Jamie Lee and I was texting with the manager of Portland Helium and being like, are you guys running your shows tonight? Cause I was at Philly Helium and he, and he was like, I'll keep you updated. We're having a, you know, a group meeting. And I was texting with Jamie and she's like, I don't know. I think I'm going to fly back. And that's when like, like the fear hit, which is like, I just landed. I just got to my hotel and I'm like, am I leaving? right away. Cause I'm the comic who like, I was ready for coronavirus. My first joke on my special on Netflix is like airports aren't that bad. It's hotels that are rugged for me, you know? <laughs> yeah. This job has me staying in a lot of hotels, Hampton Inns, Best Westerns, not to brag. 
And when I'm in a hotel, I take the elevator up to my room, just like you guys. And I'm statistically in that elevator with an old white man. It's only a matter of time before he looks at me and he says something like, you're quiet. Why are you so serious? Why don't you smile? And then I look at him and I say something like, I have to shit. I'm just like really focused. I'm the comic who has Clorox wipes to go that are yeah, in my suitcase. So I sanitize everything before I get into my hotel room. Services. What if I Clorox the sheets? No, I don't. <laughs> I don't wipe the sheets down. Yeah, I mean, even the night that you that you performed, it was sort of before we all realized how serious this was, but we were still all talking about it and thinking about it. So was it like, was it on your mind that even the taping of the special could get postponed or pushed or anything like that? I wasn't worried at all because it wasn't, it was like a little bit in the, um, Corona was, it's not that it was unknown or something, but it just didn't, no one was taking it seriously, especially our president. But this was before it even got to him. You know, I think he ignored it a couple weeks longer. Or maybe still you could argue, but... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so I remember leaving stage after the second taping and people were kind of like my crowd, as you got to see, like I wanted it to feel very intimate and have them be around me. And uh, so as I'm leaving through the crowd, a guy like people were high fiving me and stuff like that. And then a guy in the last row, like put his elbow out and I was like, Corona. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> so, so it was there, but it wasn't a threat. It didn't feel like a threat to the taping and it didn't think I had no clue what was to come. Yeah. Beth Stelling had no intention of putting herself in danger for her comedy. But the same can't be said for Jordan Klepper, who repeatedly risked his life going to maskless Trump rallies in the months leading up to the 2020 election. In this clip from our talk back in October, Jordan explained why he rarely ventured beyond the parking lots. Americans want to be on television and they want their voices heard. So when they see a camera, and we're up front with them, you know, we're not deceitful. They come on up. We say, can we talk to you? They're like, great. We're like, before we talk to you, we need you to sign permission that we can use this on television. And we give them a, a sheet that they can read and they sign and then we have a conversation. So, yeah, there, there, there's a legal process to all of this uh, that we are very upfront about. But people, again, they're, they're willing to talk. And also the iron that perhaps some people see in the videos that I and The Daily Show make is not necessarily an irony or a reality that those folks see either. I think the guy who, to, who I talked to in the last rally, who was like, I'm not, I'm not a sheeple. And that's a term he uses. I'm a lion. I'm not a sheep. I won't be a sheeple. And I ask him why he's not wearing a mask. He's like, I'll totally wear a mask if I see everybody wearing a mask. But I'm not going to just put on a mask because I should. I'm not a sheeple. To me, I hear irony. <laughs> <laughs> I, I see contradiction. To him, he doesn't at all. He sees ideology and that he's not a sheeple. And that's something that's, I'm sure it's a T-shirt he saw at some point. But he also <laughs> sees logic of like, oh, of course, if the people I agree with do something, I'm going to follow them, but I'm not a follower. And so oddly enough, I think you could show some of these videos to a lot of the folks who, who are in them and they wouldn't see it as um, a gotcha moment. They would see it as vindication of the point of view they already have. You're pro-life. Of course. It's important for Americans to do whatever they can to protect a human life. Yes. Why aren't you wearing a mask? I mean, again, it's a personal choice, I think. If everybody was 
wearing them and everybody said put a mask on, I would respect everybody's wishes and put it on. Uh -huh. We're not cheap. We're, we're not lines. cheap. We're not cheap. But if everybody here was wearing masks. If everybody was wearing but again, we're not cheap. You're not cheap. We're not. So you're going to look at what everybody's doing and you're going to follow That's along. That's it. Yeah. But not cheap. Not cheap. Do you ever hear from these people afterwards that who have been on and, and either are upset about something or, or actually like that they were on or anything like that? This last rally, we didn't get to talk to him because he passed on by, but somebody I talked to in Hershey, Pennsylvania came by and heckled us. I don't think he knew it was us, but he was in our last video <laughs> <laughs> claiming he read the Ukrainian call transcript, which he clearly did not. And he walked by again. I was like, oh, right. I think people need to know at these rallies, people, you're, I'm seeing people over and over again at these rallies. It's the same people going again and again. A lot of the same people, especially the first few hundred people, they're in RVs, they're traveling around, they're there for the party. And they're not always going in for the speech either. It's like a football team that's losing. You might you might tailgate all day. You might not <laughs> go to the game because you're drunk by the time the, the game starts and you kind of know what's going to happen. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah. You don't go into the, the arenas to, to actually watch the speech or you, or you have it on occasion or? Well, I tend not to go into it because that's where you catch uh, COVID and perhaps <laughs> die. The Herman Cain rule. It's uh, stay outside if you can. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not usually. Originally, we would go to the event outside where we'd talk to the rally goers, and then we'd go inside as well. After doing that a handful of times, one, they don't let you film much inside. They usually keep you, if you have a camera, they put you in a pen, and then Donald Trump uh, uh, berates you. Right. Also, it's really hard to interview people when uh, Macho Man is playing on repeat in the background at full, full volume. And so so we found like it, the purpose of this isn't necessarily the, the chaos that happens inside the rallies. The purpose of it is let's talk to the people who are going and they're showing up 12 hours in advance in a parking lot. So you have plenty that's, of time. <laughs> we have plenty of time. We just, we hang out in parking lots for a good 10 hours. And after 10 hours in a parking lot, talking to people about Donald Trump, you're ready to go home. Of course, none of that stopped Jordan Klepper from covering what ended up being a violent insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. We might have to have him on the podcast a third time just to talk about what that experience was like. This next bit is from one of my favorite interviews I've done over the past year with the mysterious filmmaker behind HBO's How To with John Wilson. After I convinced John to turn on his webcam, we had an amazing conversation, which included him telling me how the shutdown in New York helped transform his show's truly incredible season finale. So the coronavirus shutdown started in the middle of the production of the finale. Basically, every single production shut down. But the beauty of my show is that I can continue to shoot by myself without anyone around. And there's no dip in production value because it always looked like shit. Yeah, you kind of made a pandemic-proof show. Yeah, it's it's kind of yeah, this thing where I, you know, I, I am taking on the, kind of a lot of the liability myself, and I didn't always tell them what I was doing. So sorry, HBO, uh, but <laughs> I realized that it was like a kind of a very decisive moment for me where I, I, I realized that I needed to capture as much of this in real time as I possibly could because every single day was like things changed so quickly and people's attitudes about what was safe changed really quickly too. So not to spoil, hopefully people have seen it by this point, but that whole section where I'm walking through the grocery store and there's that massive line, looking back at it now, it's a really fascinating document to me because basically nobody was wearing masks. Some people were wearing gloves. 
I realized, you know, like the supermarket rush right when the shutdown began was probably the biggest super spreader event of all. Everyone was doing the exactly the wrong thing. Yeah, exactly the wrong thing in really tight spaces. And everyone, I'm, I'm amazed that I didn't get it, you know. And even even like the guy at the yard sale who I was talking to, who's trying to sell me the bust of JFK or whatever, who's something like I was trying to buy a pot from or a, a, a pan from him. There were these two twins and uh, I was talking to them in that little back room and asking them about the coronavirus. I forget what the date was. It was like around the 12th of March. And he said, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, it'll pass. And then I panned to his twin brother. And I think in that moment, I later found out that he was, I think, I think he had coronavirus in that moment because I checked their Instagram like a week later and he was like hospitalized. Oh my God. But he's okay now. I see him around the neighborhood. They're both fine. But yeah, I didn't really know what kind of danger I was putting myself in, but it was just something I felt like I had to do. Yeah. And I mean, and so now you have this show that really captures New York in a way that it is not, that it doesn't currently exist because in this in the early episodes then this transition period and i know you've continued to shoot footage since wrapping um do you have an eye towards what you would want to do with this footage that you've been shooting sort of throughout and during the the pandemic in new york uh yeah i mean i i never stopped shooting even though i don't currently have the green light for another season uh you know this is just my resting state i just don't want there to be any gaps in coverage no matter what just because this is such a kind of a strange precious time in New York right now. And yeah, I have like multiple episode ideas that I'm just shooting and I just, some of them are kind of motivated by the limitations put in place by the virus. And who knows how long this is going to go on for, but I don't want to just assume that someone is going to capture everything the right way. You know, I just want to capture it as well as I can my own way before these kind of things disappear and this way of this new way of life. I don't know. I think that documentary is like works best as like a historical document a lot of the time. And I just feel like the, I, you know, I always say that even if my, even if my movies kind of fail as a memoir or or a comedy, uh, hopefully they'll at least succeed as just raw footage of uh, New York during a very specific time. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you could have a, a fascinating second season that really focuses on this on this time and this moment. Um, so I really hope that you get to make it because I I would really love to watch it. Yeah, that, that was one thing I was like worried about is is coming out with the show now. This is all you know. The show is mo- almost all pre coronavirus, and I was afraid that people would not want to time travel back to pre COVID. You know, and and that people would think it was kind of crass to talk about these really kind of petty things that that don't have as much relevance to the political or so you know social climate right now, but I feel like I was wrong. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, there's something really almost comforting about watching these uh, these episodes that, that take us back to a, a time that feels suddenly unfamiliar. Yeah, I hope so. But yeah, and but I'll also have the same anxiety about, you know, like, will people like once once maybe a vaccine is farther along, <laughs> yeah. and maybe we're re- reverting to normal ish. Um, will people want to uh, be reminded of this agonizing period that everyone wants to forget? But I'm not going to stop either way. In the three months or so since we talked, HBO announced they are renewing How To with John Wilson for a second season. So I can't wait to see all of the footage he's been filming since they wrapped a year ago. Okay, finally, at the beginning of this year, I talked to the comedian who, in a lot of ways, really defined what comedy was in 2020. Sarah Cooper readily admits that none of the attention and success that has come her way would have happened 
without the pandemic. I was hosting open mics and I was working on my next book and um, lockdown happened. All the mics canceled, shows canceled. I should have been just focusing on my book, but I was like, I wanted to make videos. I, I was kind of really intrigued by a lot of people using Instagram for video. And I was like, you know, I, I'd like to build my following and maybe create some kind of series. Um, cause I'm, I'm used to creating like one-off videos, but I, I always admire people that can cre- come up with an idea that like has legs beyond just one thing. And so that's kind of what I was experimenting with. I, I tried doing like news from quarantine. I did a little skit about that. I did a little like <laughs> reenactment of a press conference with like my dog playing Dr. Fauci. Like I was just playing <laughs> around with like anything that I could do. And TikTok, everybody was on TikTok and my nephews had showed it to me like the summer before. And, and so I was playing around with a bunch of different things on, on there. And yeah, I mean, it was really just experimenting and seeing what people liked and really the low, um, expectation of, of production value that everyone had, because everyone knew that you're just at home. There's you, you had, you could only work with what you had. And, and so I felt like that worked in my favor. It worked in my favor that people were like looking for things to watch and looking for things to talk about. And then it worked in my favor when he gave me the perfect 60 second clip where he's talking about injecting, you know, Lysol into your veins, like really just, you know, a brilliant comedy piece. And without without realizing it, it was absolutely <laughs> brilliant. The way that he's talking about it and then like looking for other people to like back him up and like, we're going to check that. Right. We're going to test that. Right. And I listened to it and I just saw the other people in the room being like talking about, you know, but nobody did that. And I think that was the thing that was so frustrating. It was like, he is saying crazy things right now. Why are scientists doctors? Why is no one being like, sir, actually, no, you're wrong. Why is no one saying that? You know? And that's sort of when you imagine like if someone who looked like you was saying it, they might get a different uh, reaction. Right. Exactly. <laughs> and I liked being that reaction person of just being like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so that was the one that was that the one that really took off the most, the the first one, the, the yeah. um, injecting bleach. Yeah. I try a few others before that, but that was the one that took off. Yeah. Were you surprised by the, by the reaction that it got? I mean, it kind of is insane when looking back that, that it, that it blew up to the degree that it did. I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was very surprised. I mean, it's one thing to have it go viral. I mean, I've had things go viral before. It's one thing to have something go viral. It's another thing to have like your career take off because of something like that. When the, which is really what happened to me last year. Um, I got an agent. I got PR. I got a Netflix special. I have like a show, a TV show deal that I've been trying to sell based on a book I wrote a few years ago. I've been trying to do that for years. So like, it really brought me so much attention. Like other things can go viral, but it brought me attention and it gave me a, a platform of, of an audience that I never had before. And that I did not see coming. You know, I, I could see getting a few million views, but I didn't see it changing my life. Was there a uh, particularly surreal um, person who shared it or, or moment where you realized how, how big it was getting? Um, there were several moments. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld was definitely like the number one, you know, when, when he shared it and then somebody said, Jerry Seinfeld's talking about you in a New York times profile. And I <laughs> yeah. said, Jer- Jerry Seinfeld's talking about me. <laughs> and I still don't really know if he knows who I am, <laughs> to be honest. Like, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. Like I fall asleep to it every night. Um, 
So I, I know, yeah, I'm like, I know it inside and out. I'm a huge fan. And so for him to talk about me after me, me doing comedy for 10 years and no, nowhere near that level of, of recognition. And then to have that happen was amazing. Um, Ben Stiller, every comment from Ben Stiller was just like, Oh my, Ben Stiller's commenting, you know, Jane Lynch, Cher, Holly Berry, like, like pretty much every single person, um, was like a huge, like, wow. And it, and I didn't even know how to respond, you know, um, because I'm not like, I don't like to make it seem like I'm showing off. So like, yeah, like retweeting everything that someone says, about yeah, you, yeah. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't do that. Like, it's just, I have too much pride <laughs> or, or I want people to think yeah, I have pride. I don't be but, seen as like, uh, you know, milking it. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. The experience of becoming super famous during this year, during this pandemic where nothing is like happening in the world and you're not going out in the streets and meeting people, you're not going to Hollywood parties, you're not doing any of that stuff. I mean, what has that been like? It's like of all the times to become super famous, this is, I mean, you're one of the few people who actually did that this past year, you know, and, yeah. and it's, it's very bizarre. I mean, what is that, what has that aspect of it been like for you? It's, I mean, I don't really feel like I'm super famous, first yeah, of all. I, think, I mean, I get well, I think recognized. You are, first of all, I think everyone. But why? <laughs> I don't think I am, though. I really don't think I am. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I, I get recognized here and there, um, but I, um, you know, maybe it is because there, I have a mask on and all, and it's winter and stuff like that. But also, yeah, I haven't left my apartment. I did Fallon from my apartment. I did Ellen from my apartment. Yeah, you know, so I did crazy. all of these things sitting on my couch. Yeah. So in any other it really, year, it would have been so different. I mean, you would have been flying to LA right. and going on these shows and, you know, it just would right. have been a really different experience. Is there, do you have, are you, do you feel conflicted about that or do you, is it just sort of what it is or? Yeah, I think, it, I think it is what it is. It's kind of like without Trump, without the pandemic, I wouldn't be talking to you. Like I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have had the success. So I just have to like accept that. Um, and know that, I mean, part of it is that part of it I look at as kind of a blessing because I I do feel like I need to separate myself a little bit from those impressions in order to have the career that I really do want to have. I, I feel like it was a great launching pad for me, but I don't, it's not something I want to do for the rest of my life. There's a lot of other things I want to talk about, a lot of other things I want to talk about. So I feel like it's like actually kind of a good thing because now I can kind of be a little bit low key and focus on writing and focus on the next thing that I want to do versus if I had been everywhere and my face had been everywhere and I'd been kind of like sat oversaturated, I think that would have um, maybe not been great for the, the future of what I want to do next. A little update from that interview. CBS just picked up Sarah Cooper's workplace comedy pilot. So I'm really hoping we get to see a lot more from her in the near future. All right, that's it for today's show. I want to thank all of the comedians you heard on today's episode and all of the others who have gotten on Zoom with me over the past year. It has been a wild time, and I hope that everyone listening has gotten as much out of these conversations as I have. There is so much more great stuff to come. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. 
Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.